This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The city of Hamilton has decided to do more to bust anti-vaccination myths and to educate the public on getting immunized. How did these anti-vaxxers get any traction anyway? Was it that kook, Jenny McCarthy? It was. It was It was McCarthyism that caused this insane movement. There's all these nut bars out there saying that, they, you know, I'm not going to vaccinate my kids because I'm not going to put those, those chemicals into their arm. And this is going to cause problems. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, it's causing problems by not having them vaccinated. Uh, joining us on the line, Matthew Miller, Assistant Professor, Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences, McMaster University. Matthew, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Okay, so this is just plain nutso, and I'm glad that the city of Hamilton's recognizing that we need to get out and, and, and really talk it up about vaccinations. Uh, you must be dumbfounded at how the anti-vax movement seems to be getting traction. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's disappointing and, uh, and certainly, you know, beyond reason um, how, how persuasive this has gotten, especially with, you know, by and large a population which is becoming more and more educated. So uh, the, I guess the question is, how did we get to this point? I mean, is this just people plain and simply... Uh, listening to too much uh, social media, not being educated. Is that what this is all about? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think the, the problem uh, has two fronts. So the f- one of those fronts is certainly, um, you know, the Internet and the sort of lack of objective screening of, you know, quote-unquote knowledge that's available. So, you know, a lot of people think they can sit in front of their computers and, um, you know, Google questions that they have, but there's no layer of, of screening for what types of sources are reliable and which aren't. And unfortunately, what you find is that by and large, the, the top hits that, that come up are by sort of like totally quack scientists um, and, and basically sources that, that don't provide reliable information. So I think that's part of the problem. I think the other part of the problem is that vaccines have become a victim of their own success. You know, unfortunately, um, our, our grandparents' generation knew people who had suffered from things like measles and polio. You know, they likely even lost family members to those illnesses. But for the current generation of parents, you know, almost no one has seen these diseases. And so the, the importance of vaccination in preventing these diseases is lost on them. Um, it's, it's gotten to the point where, you know, a small prick in the arm um, seems like, you know, a really dangerous intervention because of the fact that, that people have never seen how devastating these actual diseases right. can be. So I think, I mean, should we then maybe put up posters and do things like they try to do with tobacco smokers, put really ugly pictures of what, uh, you know, these diseases look like and, and can, can do? Uh, and, you know, show children that, that had these uh, diseases, uh, rubella and all these things, and show really sick people to get it through to people that, hey, if you vaccinate them, your child's not going to go through this. You know, I, I really don't think that's a bad idea. I think, you know, we see time and time again in the media that, you know, as they say, a picture uh, a picture is as good as a thousand words. You know, that was certainly true of, of that very sad image we saw uh, at the end of, or I guess middle of last year with um, uh, the refugee crisis and the child who had passed away on the beachfront. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these types of, of vivid imagery um, seem to have a lot more of an effect on the public than, you know, long written essays do. And so those types of campaigns, I think there's, there's a place for that. Um, I also think something that, that we need to do better as, you know, medical professionals is to be really honest with the public. I think in the same way that anti-vaxxers adopt, um, you know, a very extreme position, I think that that some people are skeptical of scientists because they have this, or or physicians, because they have this impression that um, physicians try to tell them that everything's perfect, and they're getting information that it's not perfect. So I think by acknowledging the ways in which, you know, things like vaccines aren't perfect, but are still really, really good, 
you know, we might open those people's eyes a little bit too, because their initial reluctance may be the same sort of reluctance we feel against anti-vaxxers. You know, extreme positions are never good positions. It's really important to be honest and um, uh, open with the public, I think, about these things. I also think that people are suspicious of, of scientists, doctors, researchers, um, uh, particularly the anti-vaxxers, uh, because they, they, they make a blanket statement that you're all in bed with big pharma. And that and 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 far, big pharma by the anti-vaxxer mentality is is a always a bad thing, always an extremely bad thing. I I don't think that big pharma is automatically a bad thing. I think we've got a lot of great tools out of a, a big pharmaceutical a research and development. But there's there's there has developed this sort of uh, uh, granola uh, eating, Birkenstock wearing, tree hugging kind of attitude about, you know, all of you guys, all of you doctors, all of you researchers, y'all being spoon-fed cash by big pharma to go out there in the public and, and sell a vaccine. And I think that's a real problem. And part of that is that people see big pharmaceutical ads all over network television all the time, and, and they just seem to be everywhere. I don't know. Do you buy into that at all? Yeah, no, I mean, that's an, that's an argument that I hear consistently. And I can tell you, I have worked my whole life in the vaccine field, and I've never gotten a cent from big pharma. If I did, I'd drive a lot nicer car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, I think that is a real problem. I mean, it, the vilification of big pharma is, is, is really complex. You know, there are, in certain situations, I understand... Um, you know, the sentiments that people have, especially when things happen like drug prices are, you know, jacked up to disproportionately unaffordable levels. But, but those, those instances, although they stick out in our minds, um, I don't think are really reflective of the industry. And, you know, we have to remember that, that pharmaceutical companies, they do provide a great service, which is that they generate drugs that many of us desperately need. But at the end of the day, they're a business, and businesses don't operate unless, you know, they make a profit. I think there's fair arguments about what that level of profit should be and ensuring, you know, affordable access to people. But I think that making sort of blanket statements about big pharma being evil is is clearly untrue. Right. And I can tell you from experience that it is certainly untrue that they pay even a small, I mean, the vast majority of of clinicians and scientists who work on vaccines have never in their lives received money from big pharma all right so let's get back to busting anti-vaccination myths what are what are the the big ones how, how many are there if there's a thousand we haven't got time but give me the top couple right. so i think you know let's let's focus on flu since it's flu season and that was sort of the the impetus for this uh, motion by city council so one of the ones that i hear all the time is that um i got the flu vaccine but i still got the flu or every time I get the vaccine, I get sick with the flu. Right. So here's a myth where I think explaining the basis for that myth to the public in a nuanced way is really important. So first of all, it's impossible for the flu vaccine to give you the flu because the vaccine doesn't contain any infectious virus. It just contains small pieces of the virus that teach our immune system what that virus looks like so that when we're actually exposed, we can fight it off. The nuanced part of this, though, is that people who get the flu vaccine do still get sick in the winter. The issue is that what they get sick with, by and large, is not the flu. The average person, I don't think, frankly, even, you know, maybe the average doctor doesn't have an easy time distinguishing between the types of symptoms you get when you're sick with influenza virus, which the vaccine protects against, versus the types of illnesses you get with the common cold. You know, those two diseases or illnesses have very, very similar sets of symptoms. The flu is much more dangerous because typically the symptoms are much worse and they can be life-threatening, whereas, you know, most people get over the cold on their own. But 
the average person isn't able to distinguish those two things because the symptoms are so similar. And that might lead people to believe that the vaccine isn't working when, in fact, what's really happening is they've just become ill with a totally different right. drug. People are also concerned about the contents of the, the, of the vaccine, that, that things like, you know, you hear the word mercury thrown around a lot. You, you know, they're worried about all of these other things. They've read stuff on Dr. Google about how these other things entering their bodies will, you know, cause their uh, uh, bodies to uh, shut down within a couple of years. Talk about that. Yeah, so so this is a great point. So uh, the first thing to say is that um, in the, the context of the vast majority of vaccines that are available, um, there are no mercury-containing compounds in them. There are in some multi-dose vials, but the important thing is that the the actual compound that acts as a preservative in these vaccines is called thermosol, which is extremely safe and is completely different from the mercury that causes mercury poisoning that we hear about in the news. Now, not everyone is a chemist, and I think that concept can be very dif- difficult to explain. But, you know, one way to perhaps, um, you know, provide an equivalent sort of Uh, explanation or illustration for people of an analogous scenario would be to say, okay, carbon, right, which, you know, people use to make like carbon fiber hockey sticks. Carbon is a chemical, but it's also the major chemical in sugar. And there's clearly a huge difference between gnawing on a carbon fiber hockey stick and eating, you know, the sugar that we eat every day. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's sort of, I think, the best way I can explain the difference between dangerous mercury and thermosol. Yes, they both contain the chemical mercury, but it's in, enti- in an entirely different form yeah. uh, and a form which, you know, doesn't cause dangerous side effects. Matthew Miller, Assistant Professor, Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences, McMaster University, a common sense conversation about a very important uh, topic. And uh, I know we'll be uh, discussing this uh, in the future and hopefully we'll see those really ugly, awful, scary posters up really soon, because I think, as you said, a picture's worth a thousand words, and sometimes people have to figuratively be hit right over the head. Thanks very much for the conversation today. My pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Bye for now. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. This is one of my favorite uh, topics, and if if you're on Facebook at all, like the rest of us old people, um, you will have seen uh, a, a video where a, a gentleman uh, jumps all over uh, millennials and uh, has some thoughts on on why millennials are failing in the workplace. And sort of the headline of the topic is millennials are struggling at work because their parents, quote, gave them medals for coming in last. And I think, you know what, in a very simplistic way, that kind of boils it boils it right down. Um, this video has had 56 million views on Facebook alone. Um, and you're hearing more and more and reading more and more about the power shift that has occurred, uh, not just with millennials, with the generations have come even after the millennials where kids are now controlling parents, kids control the household in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And, and why is that the case? Um, by the way, the guy's name is Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K. If you want to look that up, Google that, go on Facebook, find it. You'll find it. Um, his explanation that uh, their parents who raised them failed them has gone viral. 56 million views on Facebook. Uh, is it because of parenting strategies that were in this situation or is it the societal environment? Well, we've gone to an expert. Dr. Daniela Schreier is with us, clinical psychologist, to chat about it. Uh, uh, Dr. Schreier, welcome back to the program. Hi, there. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Um, Millennials are struggling at work, and I would argue they're struggling in relationships and in all other social situations because they don't have social skills and because they've been taught uh, by their parents that... um, they don't need to feel bad ever. They don't need to feel any negative emotions. They don't have to overcome any adversity because their parents have always been able to get out in front of that adversity. So they've never learned to cope. Would you agree with that? 
Well, I think every time when we say all or nothing, we make a wrong statement. I'm agreeing with some of the points that you're making. But again, I think it's not all of the millennials because I have some clients, patients and some students. They are just born in that generation and they act completely different. Unfortunately, it means Simon Sinek is a quite famous writer. He writes on leadership, and I'm using some of his books, so students of mine in graduate school often present on him because he has his own ideas on leadership. And in summary, his talk really was about that companies now are are, um, actually responsible for educating this millennials because they don't have what they should have. They don't have what it takes, and now leadership should have to step up to train these people to actually learn how work goes, how life goes, relationship go. And I am just, you know, I'm running my own business and I'm thinking it's it's a tall order. If I'm if I'm hiring a postdoc, that person really needs already to know how to handle himself, his life and what he wants professionally. So that was the end goal of the talk. Yes. He blamed uh, parents, right, my dear? And he said parents didn't give them uh, kind of the notion that they have to work hard. And partially, I agree. But I do think the problem here is, again, what we're doing, we're blaming it on someone else. And thus, that doesn't help millennials to learn to take responsibility for for whatever they are handed at this point. So what should we be doing? What should we be doing at this point? Well, number one, I think we should look into our society. The parents of millennials are probably the first set or the second set of parents um, who both work. So children, if you look into the middle class, lower income class, children are actually mainly unsupervised at home. That has changed. Even my generation, I'm born in 70, some of the moms worked maybe, but the majority, at least back then in Europe still, you had one parent staying at home. Okay. so this has changed. So both parents are out of the house. Plus, we have access to technology. And as soon as they crawl out of the womb, what do they have? Access to iPads and cell phones. So a couple of things I think that we should do. And Cynic made sense with some of the things that he said for me, but not with everything. Parenting issues. Yes. You know what? I often say that I'm going to a coffee store and see children just run around like crazy. And I'm asking myself, who's the parent, who's the child? I found myself, mean as I am, going up to a couple of parents at one point and say, look, I'm not getting involved here. This is your kid. Your kid should not play at my table because I'm not his mom. So if you're not coming and parenting him or her, I'm going to do it for you. And what do those parents say to you? What do those parents say to you when you do that? I'll let you answer, but my prediction is they get pretty uppity at you, correct? Well, the, the ones that I did that with, vintage is back already, back in Texas, they quickly stood up and go went and got their kids. Okay. But I think it can go either way because probably some people would just say, this is a restaurant, they can do whatever they want. Right. But then you see, well, child, you know, as parent, that's the problem. And I don't want to have to do that. I'm not a mean person, but sometimes it's just, you know what, people would tell me to take care of my dog, so please, you take care of your kid. Number one, so I think parents really have to, to make a clear cut. Who's the parent? Who's the child? The child does not need a friend right now when they are 10 or 15, whatever. They need a parent. Mm-hmm. And the parent needs to be there in order for them also to be successful in school. So the parent also needs to regulate the access to technology. Mm-hmm. Because you know what? Children, nowadays, everything is on Facebook, as he says correctly, and how many likes we have. But all is also very superficial and remote because you're really not on there. You, 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 you're writing some words, so you have a snapshot. You have kind of an imaginary life that is online. Right. But very often it's not the life that you have. So there needs to be regulation. Mm-hmm. You should also say there's a certain age a person should have a cell phone, not before that. They need to have access to certain items, not all, right? Okay. I want to stop you on that point. I, I've said to my daughters, you, you are not going to have a cell phone before the age of 14. You are not going to have any uh, social media accounts that I know of um, before the same, the same age. Is, is, that, is that the appropriate age or, should, or am I being too hard? 
Well, I do think you should not compare yourself to others because they come home and other people wear Nike shoes or Ralph Lauren clothes. Maybe you can't afford it. You can't give it to them either. I think you must make an informed decision for yourself as a parent. But does that, as a psychologist, does that make sense to you that a child shouldn't have a cell phone till they're, till they're, you know, around the age of 13 or 14? To me, that makes sense as long as, for example, the cell phone is not needed for them to be safe. Sometimes there is communication, right? They need to be picked up from school or be dropped off. So in certain areas, if you can afford it and they need to have it just to communicate with you or your wife, I think that would be um, uh, acceptable. But if that is not necessary because they have access and you can kind of, you know, when they come and go, then it is your total right to say, no, we're not doing that because then you're not doing homework anymore. You're just on your cell phone the entire day. And that's day. what they're and that's, that's what fine. they're and that's what they're going to do. And I and I'm I'm not naive enough to think that um, they're not going to be finding ways around uh, you know the rules. Uh, kids have been doing that for generations with 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 uh, with parents. But let's get back on to the whole thing uh, about millennials and where we're kind of going wrong with parenting and allowing the children to control the household and control the parenting. Well, but see this. If you have, for example, two parents working, when they come home in the evening, they are both tired. It's very hard to say that you're sitting down for four hours and then do homework with the children. Does that make sense? So in my opinion, the way our society develops, right, or the way the rate we are going much too fast and we need to income, etc. So often parents make up with material things. Okay, kind of we give them something and children become independent very early and they become dependent on what? On friends, on technology, maybe on, on alcohol, we don't know because there is not such a strict parental control anymore. And so we have to look into society and see what can we do with that. I want to add, however, a second point, what I'm noticing a lot with the millennial generation, not everyone, but many of them, there's no patience. They want immediate gratification. They come out of school and they think they should get a job of a CEO because right. they, are exposed, they are exposed to too much reality TV. It means, uh, God bless Kim Kardashian, not everyone can have a reality show. Okay, So you go into Benetton and you find a frustrated millennial who doesn't want to do his job. You want to buy something and they really don't love their job. They don't love their customers. Yes. And they have no patience to work for something. Not all, some of them. And that's something that we can enforce as parents already. Some of us, when we were little, we had a newspaper route. Some of us had chores in the house. So insisting on that children, as long as they put the feet under your table, learn that there's a structure, that they can earn some money, that they can earn some praise, but they have to be a valuable part of the family. And if they don't live up to the expectation, then there's consequences. But and do- I think that is what was lacking for right. a long time. But Dr. Yeah. Schreier, a lot of parents have a lot of fear. And and I and I've seen this, I, you know, again, I'm not an expert like you are, but I've I've certainly observed and I've got children ranging in age from 22 down to 5. So I've got a little bit of experience mm-hmm. in in parenting. What I've noticed is that parents over the last few decades have become more and more fearful, afraid to let their kids go outside for fear that the boogeyman's going to get them. So you've got these helicopter parents. They, they have to, they, they don't want their kid to fall off a skateboard and get a skinned knee. They, they'll do anything. They want to wrap them in a bubble wrap from the big bad world. They don't want them to feel any negative um, emotion or disappointment in life, including, you know, losing at soccer or hockey or whatever. They don't want to have to have them feel that. That's a learning experience. You can teach kids how to overcome adversity by going through that experience. That's a valuable lesson. They don't want them to have to suffer anything. Nobody wants their kid to suffer. Maybe that's the wrong word. But they're so bent on protecting them and giving them what they want all the time that they're doing them a great disservice, I think. Yeah, if you isolate someone constantly and have them never get in contact with any bacteria, what you find is someone then who is uh, has no immune system. Yeah. That's what you're talking about. See, I taught graduate school for a long time. So I had students from the age of maybe 20, the very young ones, right, 20, 21 to 40 or older. Um, and very often it means people come in and they think all the rules that you establish are bendable. And for me, the discussion was always, honey, uh, 
when you come into my classroom, you close the door when you're the last person because I'm not your mama. And if you come <laughs> later than I am in here, it means probably the door is closed and you can't enter. Right. And you know what? I was very surprised because people shaped up very quickly. And I do think that parents need to get over that particular fear. You cannot protect your, your children from disappointment. Disappointment is actually needed for that to build resistance. And not everyone is a soccer star. Let me just finish that. And not, not everyone is a creative writer. It doesn't help us when uh, uh, your child is a star in everything that he or she does and everyone else is too, because it will not help them to find their niche. And it will not help them to find out that, well, you know what? In life, we learn more from failure than from winning. The trick is just not to make it a habit. So it's okay then as parents uh, to set boundaries in the household, to have uh, expectations uh, and and set reasonable age-appropriate responsibilities and boundaries within your home. Nowadays, a lot of people would look at that and say, and say, you have a very stern household and that's not good for kids. What would you say to that? Well, I think um, I would say get a grip. Who's the parent? Who's the child? Your role is when you're bringing someone into this life that you're giving them the appropriate structure to be able not only to survive, but to strive. And if you don't give them a regular schedule, such as, for example, eating, sleeping, ability to do their homework, ability to enjoy um, um, leisure time and, and teach them how to have fun with you and others, but also get them to bed when they need to. That's what they need in order to become actually good citizens. The problem is that this, if you don't want to be a parent, because right now we're living in a society where no one wants uh, to give even um, constructive feedback. People shy away from it. Oh, you can't tell the truth. No. A parent needs to tell the truth in order to help his or her child to be the, become the best that they can be. And I'm sorry, maybe your child will disappoint you and he is not a creative writer, but maybe he's a master's and then let him be that. So it is that we as adults have to take responsibility. If you put someone on this earth, you have to work with them. You know what? That they can not only fit in, but find their own niche. And right now that's not happening. I think it's interesting that you, you mentioned the value of, of structure and of schedule and of, uh, of discipline. Bad time. Yeah. Ba- what bad did you say? Ba- you know, a bad time, even when they go to bed. You have students. I have a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm treating families too and lovely families. So children act out in school. And then they come back, why did that happen now? He did this and this and this today. I say, well, when did he go to bed during that week? Oh, his father was traveling or mom was traveling. And he had an open bed time. Well, yeah. a six or seven or ten-year-old shouldn't have an open bed time. The fact is, okay, it is children's job to, job to push the boundaries. And the problem with some millenniums was they pushed and pushed. And no one pushed back. And that's the problem. Right. 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 I mean, I've heard, uh, you know, I've heard experts like yourself and uh, others who have written uh, uh, books, dozens of books, say that kids uh, really thrive on having uh, boundaries and and expectations and rules uh, under which to live uh, in a household. And and that uh, so we've got these these parents, um, many of whom have just decided to to kind of abandon that. I don't know where that started, Dr. Schreier. Can you pinpoint a time in the last few decades or two decades or whatever where that began? Was it with the advent of the Internet itself in 94? Well, I would say it was actually already happening before because I grew up with my grandmother and grandparents. Okay. During the age of, of my mom, and I would say maybe people at least in Europe born after the Second World War, right? Baby boomers, that was the start, the tail end, right? Because they already themselves grew up with parents who wanted to give them a better life. But those parents were still much more structured, at least in, in Germany. Or it was the war generation. They were 15, 16 when the war started. They had been through a hardship. They wanted to rebuild, in this case, Germany, and then try to give their children a better outlook. I know already the generation of my mom has been much more lenient than the generation before. Hence, I can compare myself with my sister who is eight years younger and a lovely young lady. <laughs> but she had 
my God, they put her to bed. She put on the TV that she had in the room. There was very little control. There was this idea also, I think, for, for more and more parents now. Our parents have become more selfish. I'm sorry to say that. The expectation is, yes, I have a child, but I'm still entitled to have my own life. Yes, honey, you are. But foremostly, you are going to be a parent. Mm-hmm. And right. this is very often what you feel forgotten now. Also, listen, it's really hard. Let's give this parent a little break. And I hate to always be putting all the blame on the parent, or I hate this cynic blaming the parents for everything. Life is hard. Can you imagine? I'm working often 12-hour days. You probably do. I have a little dog only. He's in my office with me. Max is working with me, right? <laughs> but we're coming home. I'm barely able. I mean, we make a little dinner. He gets his little wash. I have my shower. We're working out. I go to bed. If I would have to come home, right, and now I have two little ones and I have to situate them and look over the homework, it means we we are doing too much. Does that make sense? Children are a full-time job, but no one anymore really has the time to do that full-time job. And that's becoming a problem. Are we also uh, throwing fuel on that that negative fire by overscheduling by uh, you know having them involved in in too many uh, extracurricular activities and again uh, you know some of that ties to tr- trying to live vicariously through our child you mentioned earlier you know you might have a dream for your kid to be a a, a great creative writer that's not their aptitude so let let their aptitude dictate what they're going to be are we overscheduling kids or are we doing too much of course The main American parent, I love America. I'm an American. I'm living here for many years now. But I've never seen the schedules of children so full. Not only is the school day already like from, I don't know, 8 to 4. I have never seen that before. We learned too. I learned in Europe, but I came home from school at least when I was little at 1230. I'm not a dumb one either. But the fact is school is already so so long. And then if if your kid every day after class has activities like learning Chinese, then you have soccer, then you have basketball, then you have baseball, then you have, I don't know, acting. You know what? Get a grip because your job is not only to to, to, to drive your children around. Sometimes they need just rest and quiet time and structure to do their homework. If they have two or three activities, that's top, right. in my opinion. It, they it, cannot handle as much as we can, but they have a fuller schedule. A six-year-old cannot sit down and digest as much as we do or do as much. We have to get off that. Right. Sure. I, I've only got 30 seconds left, literally. But but is it okay for dad here to just hang out with his daughters and talk? Is it okay for, for dad to just hang out, sit with his daughters and engage, maybe play cards or, or just t- talk? Is it all right to do that these dad? days? Dad, do more of it. Share some stories. Share some worldview. Talk about current events. Off your devices. The dad and mom, too. Put your cell phones away. Do a family thing. Engage. Have relationships. Love each other. Be parents. All right. Dr. Uh, Daniela Schreier, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a lovely day. Bye, my dear. You, too. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Saturday Night Live has uh, been having its biggest season in decades, uh, of course, due to Trump and the U.S. election. And the latest riff occurred over the weekend uh, with Melissa McCarthy taking on Sean Spicer. And I'm not kidding when I say they, you know, they were upset more because it was a, a woman uh, playing the part of Sean Spicer. And now we're hearing that Rosie O'Donnell... <laughs> Wants to play Steve Bannon, the white supremacist, on the show. Um, it's getting hard to tell which is the comedy show and which is the administration. The two are, you know, I don't know which one's funnier. I've never paid more attention to an, a, an American uh, government administration than I have to the Trump administration on a daily basis. It's like I can't wait to tune in to Fox and to CNN and and see what the latest bumbles have been on the part of the Trump administration. It's literally entertaining. It's scary, too. Don't get me wrong. It's entertaining in the sense that it's it's like, you know, anticipating watching cars crash in the Indy 500. It's 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 that kind of kind of thing. Sandra Caruzzi is with me. She's a comedian and a host of uh, Inside Jokes on AM640, our brother station in Toronto. Sandra, thanks for being with me this afternoon. Thank you. Good to be here. 
SNL, um, yes. highest ratings in 22 years. Yes. What do you think of that? Yeah, the last time they had these ratings was when it was still Chris Farley and Mike Myers and Adam Sandler were there. And, you know, there was criticism over the years over SNL just tanking out, you know, and they couldn't hit their stride. And um, now Alec Baldwin is going on for the 17th time uh, this weekend. You know, and some people are saying, what, are they overdoing it because, they're, you know, it's a good thing, so they want to keep putting him in there. Uh, but they're trying to ride this wave now, right? Like, they've never had this much press over anything. Right. And if and here's the thing that the people say is, you know, is it too much now? Hey, the administration, Trump keeps giving them the material. I mean, they're, they're not having to sit around in the writer's room and come up with new ideas. This guy is feeding them material every day. So why not? Take it, right? Yeah. And it's true for the comics I interview every week, too, and just following them on social media, all the comics that I deal with. Yeah, for sure, this stuff is getting pumped out. Like, you know, this one comic, um, uh, Martha Chavez, she's hilarious. She calls him uh, El Cheeto Loco. Uh, <laughs> and, the orange and, thing, I get it. That's right. Yeah, right. And there's all these names and there's so much material. Uh, so that's a big part of, you know, where Trump gets his press, too, right? Because he's so easily picked on. And um, But this hate on he has for Rosie O'Donnell, though, that's like a full on. This this is going to get dark and ugly. I think. Yeah. So so is um is she going to play Bannon? Do you think? Do you think we'll see her show up this weekend? You know, they might surprise us. She's you know the last word from her is that I'm waiting to be asked. I'm ready to go um, because um, the last round they had her and Trump a couple of years back, he really went at her like bad. Yeah. And she kind of took the high road. Her final words. She didn't really go back at him. Um, and she was saying, you know, I had never been that bullied since school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was in 2014 that Donald, uh, that Trump was tweeting, Rosie is mentally sick woman, she's a bully, she's a dummy, and a loser. And those were his last words about her. She didn't really reply. So some are saying that this is going to be her big rebuttal finally. Uh, if if SNL chooses to go that route, I got to think that you know comedians by nature are you know one of their job is to make people laugh, mm-hmm. um, but by nature a lot of comedians are are people that have have um, backstories that have suffered emotional pain, have been the victims mm-hmm. of bullies, and one of the reasons that uh, they are who they are is because they they express their art, and, and a lot of it, it comes right. from the energy created by negative things that happen to them in their life. And, and so, uh, again, um, you've got the ultimate bully now uh, mm-hmm. in, in the role of president of the United States, and this is just giving... Uh, comedians uh, fire and same thing with the heckling I mean uh, you know they tell jokes and then these knobs in Washington who are running the government uh, tweet these silly responses out to to the uh, to the jokes and it's like a heckler in the crowd right it's it's gold like bring it to me so I can hit you again yeah and you you nailed it too and you're you're very articulate about everything actually Um, no one's ever accused me of that (laughs) but thanks it's all about power, and there's a lot of power in comedy. And, and people don't really understand that when a comedian is in front of a group of people, that's power. And so politicians don't want that, right? They want to maintain the power. You know, Trump, look, for him to go through and win without the media, he did that strictly with, you know, all his 40 million followers on social media. That's power. That's how he got into power. He ran that ship, right? So comedians possess a lot of power. You know, things like the Bill Cosby thing, that came out from another comedian, Hannibal Hannibal Buress, who went on stage and talked about it, and then questions started to be asked. So there's, like, numerous examples of things that stand-up comics have said that have led to change in society. And so the last thing politicians want, in particular the Trump people, is for any of this to catch any traction. And that's why comics keep running at it, and SNL in particular, because they have these platforms where people listen. So now that Trump has discounted a lot of the news agencies, um, it, it, the power comes with the comedians and SNL. And so he's going to have to get in there and discredit them as much as possible before they pick up traction. You know what I'm saying? Which they already have. It is. Uh, it really is phenomenal uh, when you stop and, and think about it from a couple of angles. Number one, I... I <laughs> 
I, most people who are in, even half intelligent have said, we cannot believe, I cannot believe that I'm living in a time <laughs> when a guy like Donald Trump is the president of the United States. There's just a, a, a sustained sense of, of disbelief here that this I is, uh, it's, you know. Yeah, it's, it's still a publicity stunt. Like, I, I'm yeah, right. Like, you know, for those of us in media and entertainment, you know, when he started the campaign, we're like, oh, this is obviously he's launching a new show, and this makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Right? When's like, he going to deliver the punchline, you know? When's the, when's the big show being launched, the new network, you know, and it just kept continuing. And, of course, nobody believed this would happen except for the supporters. And and so now we're watching this play out in the strangest way. And, um, and comedy, you know, like that's what I do and it's my life. And I know I'm giving it all this power, but it really does have that kind of power. Of course it does. And, you know, he, it's going to be hard for him to discredit comedy because you could discredit news, right? Mm-hmm. But comedy's comedy, right? Like nobody's going to say, well, that's not real comedy or that's not the truth. Right. The great Right. The great thing about satire, like the Beaverton is a fantastic program. Um, you could watch that, which is satirical news. And um, people don't know the difference between real news and satire anymore. And so that's what's going to really be the Achilles heel for the Trump uh, people and the whole administration. And, and to help make your point, the, the last time uh, we saw something even close to this was when you had a show like the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, which was yeah. which was on in the late '60s, very into the er, very early 1970s, but it was it, it was it became too hot to handle, and it yeah. was it was heavily political and heavily critical of yeah. of the government of the day. It was and you, when you think about it, it was pioneering and it was very courageous uh, for, yeah. for for them to do that because they kind of squashed their own career because eventually the network said. You guys are just too hot to handle, and we, we're we're canceling you. For well, here's yeah. Well, here's the thing. Sorry to cut in. It's okay. Um, my concern with the Rosie O'Donnells to everybody who's going, all everybody who went up against him, from Madonna to everybody, mm. guys, like he's still the president of the United States. He still has the ultimate power. And I know that sounds ridiculous, and I don't want to be a fear monger, but it's frightening. He's a comedian, and I'm not afraid. I don't back down. Like I was making Rob Ford jokes long before anybody else was. And it wasn't even a personal thing. I actually knew Doug. For, I know Doug Ford, so it wasn't. I never backed down. Like I was making jokes. They were in the audience. I didn't even know they were there. It was a big. It was a big thing that came out. It was very funny. But uh, I totally made a kook of myself. But it didn't matter. <laughs> like I'm not afraid. But listen, this is the the president. There's not. It wouldn't be the first time a comedian took on a president. But the kind of viciousness that they're going after him with, and the kind of hateful things that is just out there now it, it's just you know he still has power like i don't know if he'll get you through the revenue uh, agency or how he's going to get to them but something is going to hit them you know i don't know yeah he well he's scary because he's he's a he's a narcissistic sociopath yeah. the guy is a complete <laughs> nut bar he's a he's a total loose cannon <laughs> he is so you're right those those types if you study if you study narcissists and sociopaths they'll they'll yeah. literally stop at nothing they'll just yeah. keep going and going and going until they're more exposed and we got i think what we have to hope here <laughs> we're into a political discussion more than a comedy discussion but it's yeah. getting hard to tell the two things apart that's right the the we i think we have to hope that something really big will be exposed with this guy that hasn't been exposed yet. And I'm I'm hooking my wager on that one. That but how worse can it get? Like, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, nothing sways the American people. Like, if the fact that he's misogynistic and he's racist and all these other things has not swayed them, what possibly could be... Unless they say he's an alien, he's not from this land, he could kill us. I don't know. <laughs> he's something ridiculous. What <laughs> could possibly be? Like, well... I think what I think what it could be is, uh, you know, give it a little bit of time and 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 when his when his crazies on the fringe realize that he's not bringing back 800 million jobs to to the United States and he's not going to be able to to come through with the things that he's he's promised. And once he looks like an emperor with no clothes, with his minions around him, once he looks like a guy who can't deliver, then you'll see then you'll see a groundswell of. We got to get rid of this guy, and yeah. and you know obviously you hope that it's not in any kind of violent way. That's another thing that mm-hmm. scares me. I don't, I you know I'm not a big fan of uh, 
of taking pot shots at, at uh, presidents. Uh, we've had too much of that in our, in our history, and we don't want anything like that to occur. But I, I, I even worry about that stuff because the, the crackpots that are in and around this, this guy's orbit are the same yeah. ones that will turn on him in a flash if they determine that he's not the guy that they, they thought he was when they voted. Well, it puts us all in danger too, right? Like, yes, if, if he is, a, a, you know, God forbid, assassinated or anything happens to him, it puts everybody in danger when something like that happens, and it changes. It just just changes the whole climate of the way everything's being run. Like, then it's a free for all. Then we're going to have to have martial law. Like, I mean, I know it's mm-hmm. extreme, but it, things are getting out of control. There is no management from anyone. There's no leadership from anyone, and and it's just a free for all. And I think that uh, I agree with you. Like, I, I'm one who does not respond or does not believe in all this hate that is going on social media on this. I keep my stuff pretty light, laughter-driven. I like to share a lot of comedy and a lot of bits and on my show. I steer away from any talk of him on my show, on Inside Jokes, with comedians. I just find it a massive waste of time. There's enough being said. And it's the old adage, like, if you're giving energy to something, if you have a cold, like I'm sick, as you can know, like, if you're going to dwell on the illness, you will feel the illness, like, to its full extent. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, what you focus on grows, yeah. Right, like, you know, so you just kind of have to, well, there's nothing we could, I mean... I know that's a bad attitude, too. I mean, one great thing was the women's uh, march and the women's movement. That's the good thing that came out of this, right? Like, at least that showed something uh, good coming from the bad. So I guess we just have to hope for more of that. I, I've got a, I, I don't see how Lauren Michaels, by the way, our guest is Sandra Caruzzi. She's a comedian and host of Inside Jokes on AM640, our brother station uh, down the highway in Toronto. I, I don't see how, how Lauren Michaels cannot deliver Rosie O'Donnell as Steve Bannon mm. this week, given the fever pitch of the buzz around this and how fast it's it's amped up. I mean, with this wave, you've got to give that to people. There are going to be so many people tuned mm. into that show this weekend anticipating seeing her do that bit. Do you not mm. think? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? It would, it, just from a rating standpoint, it would be ridiculous for him not to. Like, unless somebody gets to him not to because the Trump people are so angry with this whole depiction, Melissa McCarthy as a woman, you know, they didn't, that was not cool. So unless they get to <laughs> Lauren Michaels in that sense. Um, Literally get to him. And get to him. Like, you know, yeah. like, I know I watch too many mobs. Put a, <laughs> put a bag over his head and throw him in the trunk of a car and <laughs> drive him away. I know, I'm being too Italian right now. Uh, uh, but it, unless that happens, like, it's a sure hit. Like, of course, man, put her on. But, you know, the thing is, if she does something stupid, like, she could blow it, too. You know what I mean? She could really blow a good thing on this whole thing, too. Yeah. How about Alec Baldwin? This guy is never going to be anybody but Donald Trump from now on, right? This guy is totally typecast. He's finished. He plays a better Donald Trump than he does. Like, right? <laughs> Like he's just—he's so good at it, you know. And um, so now getting Rosie in there just to, to further, you know, rub salt in that wound. Uh, <clears throat> you know, maybe Alec has been on too much too. Who knows? It's—it's it's funny. I want to talk about Kate McKinnon too for for oh. for a second. Now she has really risen. Uh, in her various roles in this whole thing, you you know she, I think a lot of us in the buzz we kind of overlook her, but look at all the different roles she's played uh, in these skits related to the election and done so well, and now she's doing this Kellyanne Conway bit, which is just killer. I mean, it is just killer, isn't it? I laughed just just from when you said it because I pictured her. She nails it, right? Like she just nails it. She does such a great job of it. Yeah, and the Hillary thing, of course, was uh, incredible. So there's some some great talent. Again, uh, I don't know how long they can ride this wave, but i got to think uh, if this administration <laughs> stays in place for, for the next four years, they're good. They're good for another four years. Well, you know, comedians were always looking for uh, material. I mean, I have two shows tomorrow night, and I'm kind of literally walking around my house lifting up stuff and trying to find something <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> you know? So if it wasn't for politics, you know, comedians would they just I wouldn't have as much material, I guess. Uh, we rely on it heavily. And, I mean, Trudeau, 
you know, I call him Justin Timberlake. There's not a lot there. He is a pop star. He's our own little Bieber, uh, you know, and then that's it. We can't even go there. So we got to go south, you know. Yeah, so uh, do you want to plug your shows? Where? What are you doing? Where are you going to be? Thank you. Oh, why, thanks, Fred. Yeah, yeah, go right ahead. Uh, being a bona fide Italian girl from Abruzzo, the earthquake has uh, has gotten a region there uh, where my relatives are. Yes. And there's a fundraiser for uh, that happening at Riviera Park in um, in Woodbridge. There you go, tomorrow night. That's my first show. And I'll be opening up for Andy Kim, who sings oh, uh, Sugar Sugar, yes. Terrific uh, musician, yeah. great guy. He's very great, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, so then after that, I, I hop in uh, my car and uh, a celebrity limousine, I have to plug them, because uh, then I go open for Frank Spadone and the doo-wops at the Center for uh, Richmond Hill Performing Arts Center, and uh, that's the late show. So i got two shows tomorrow night, and I have no voice, as you know. So, That's because you're doing talk shows all the time leading up to these shows. You should be having <laughs> lemon and honey and not doing shows with people from Hamilton. Uh, I did one. I did <laughs> actually for the McMaster Children's Foundation. Awesome audiences in Hamilton, by the way, for comedy. Like comedians, I just talked to a few today. We love playing Hamilton, Stony Creek. It's such a good audience. Well, that's good. I mean, we had a you know we had a, a yuck yucks here for a, a number of years, and and it usually usually was well populated. I think yeah, I think we like to to have a good time here uh, here in Steeltown, and I know you guys do in Toronto as well. This is uh, these are weird times we're in, Sandra Caruzzi. Very very weird times, and I, I like your point. Just to wrap things up. I really like your point again about the power that comedians have. And actually, if you want to get a little bit serious about this, the important role that comedians have in keeping this stuff in the forefronts of people's minds and showing the absurdity of it. That's the nature of comedy, blowing things up and showing the absurdity of things at a time when the media, the mainstream media outlets are under attack by the administration. Somebody's got to keep us paying attention to the absurdity of this. That's right. And George Carlin uh, is still being quoted from stuff he said politically uh, decades ago. And so these things stay in people's minds and it sways people's minds either way. And in Canada, actually, sorry, I know you're wrapping it up. It's okay. Take your time. I'm part of a group of comedians who are starting an association to lobby our own government to deem comedy as art in our country uh, because uh, it is not deemed as art. And Trudeau allocated $550 million to the Arts Council, and comedians don't even get a sniff of that. It goes to, you know, important things like interpretive dance uh, and poetry, uh, which apparently are supposed to be such a big part of the fabric of this country. But yet, you know, Mike Myers and Jim Carrey, this is what we think of when we think of Canada, and yet comedy is not deemed as art. And what a part of our argument is, is when we present and, and uh, we're waiting for this Trump stuff to cool down because we want to get our shot at the immigration minister and, uh, and also um, to some people domestically, is uh, that, you know, we want to say, like, comedy is art where it's very powerful. And as one comedian put it, Sandra Badalini, she wrote an open letter to Trudeau. She said, at the time of our election, you know, it was comedians who stood on stages and bashed Harper, which ultimately helped the Trudeau cause. Because Trudeau, marketing dollar-wise, did not have money to go up yeah. against what Harper was spending in marketing. Unbelievable. Right. Absolutely. And you're, yeah. and you're right. All good points for sure. Sandra Caruzzi, comedian, host of Inside Jokes on AM640, our brother station in Toronto. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank T- you. Keep laughing, everybody. Will do. Take care. Bye for now. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.